Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to episode number 75 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. You can reach me at the real 27 guy on Instagram. This episode is brought to you by Basketball Card Fanatic Magazine. BCF is the magazine for basketball card fanatics. Get your high quality print copy of BCF mailed to you every month by subscribing at bcfmag.com. That's bcfmag.com. Use discount code BASKETBALL10 for 10% off any item in the store. All subscriptions, one-time purchases, all of it. Again, that's basketball10 at bcfmag.com. Thank you guys for downloading the podcast today. Today's episode is called Solving for Multiple Variables. And no, this is not a math class. <laughs> um, this is something that um, I, I don't hear enough people talk about. Um, a lot of times when people talk about the market, they ask questions like, you know, what's happening with cards? Why is this bad? Or why is this good? And, and I think people simplify it too much. And, and I don't think it's that complex, but I do think that this idea of multiple variables is important to talk about. So, um, you know, let's, let's jump right in and let's talk about it today. So, to talk about it really simply here in the beginning, I really think you've got to think about the card market in at least two variables, right? Um, to, to, to clarify, though, the reason that I think that we call this episode Solving for Multiple Variables, it is very much like when you were in algebra back in 7th or 8th grade and your teacher put something on the board, a, ma- a math equation. A single variable is when you have like a problem that's like 6x plus 5 equals 17. In that situation, the x has to equal 2 because 6 times 2 plus 5 equals 17. You know what x is equal to. But then when you have multiple variables where you say 3x minus 4y plus 7 equals something, then it's a more difficult problem because you have a situation where an item where a variable might mean one thing or it might mean something else. In those instances, a lot of times there's multiple answers. But what's clear is that sometimes in, in the world, people will look at something that's happened. They'll look at an outcome and they'll say, oh, I know why that happened. And then they'll suggest an answer. And in a lot of cases, people are wrong about this because there's another variable that people haven't really been thinking about. And so back to what I was saying a moment ago, in the card market, there are always at least two variables that need to be considered. And one is the card and what's happening with the card. And two is what is happening in the market. Let's talk for a second about how in business, um, when you're investing in a company and you do due diligence, this is worthy of consideration, but also not fully knowable. When a company or when an investment firm, like a private equity firm, is looking at investing in a new company, they will look at the company and they will analyze a lot of things about it. They'll look at the financials. They'll look at the projections, the run rate of what the company anticipates or budgets that they will do. They'll look at budgeted costs and budgeted revenues. They'll look at the whole of that sector of the market and ask what is happening in that sector and what what potential competition does this company have? 
they'll look at the leadership of the company and ask whether that company, whether that leadership is, is able to do all the things that they need to be able to do. And then one thing that they'll also look at is they'll look at the macroeconomic factors that surround that company. They'll look at the, the parts of, of the macro economy that could influence that company. And what they'll know is they do that is that the macro environment isn't necessarily knowable. When you look at it, when you look at a card, the exact same thing is true. And so what I continue to hear from people is how such and such is such a good investment, such and such is such a bad investment. And I think that we need to think about things um, we need to think about things different than that. Um, we, we, we can think about it simply if we choose to ignore the macro. Um, but it, in my experience over the course of the last few years, so many people have come across or have, have ended up very negative on cards because of things that happened in the macro environment. So what, what kind of things am I talking about? Well, when we had COVID hit, you guys all know this because you're listening to this podcast. When we had COVID hit, we had really like this unprecedented demand in our hobby. People started collecting that hadn't for a long time. And in that situation, you could have a card that didn't have any more, you know, anything that was happening to it that made it worth more money. What you, But you might have the macro changing and that alone may have really increased the value of a card. Over the course of the last couple of years, you have some cards that have become more popular within the hobby, players who are more sought after, but because of what's happened on the macro side, um, where people in general have gone away from collecting, some of those cards have still decreased. How is it that a card where a player has gotten more popular and the set has become more popular can be worth less after time that's the sort of question that people are asking and and people will say you know i you know especially new collectors they'll look at it and they'll say i don't understand what happened here i predicted the right player i predicted the right set what happened again you've got to look at the macro um, and you have to really consider what what other factors might might change it because although i've simplified it down to the two um, variables. It's not even just two variables, right? For a given card, take any card in the world. You have not only a player, not only the macro stuff, the, those are the first sort of two things we look at, but you have the set, you have the sport, you have how people think about um, all of those things. You have all the other factors, things like the aesthetics of that specific card, the pose of the player. If it's an autograph or a patch, you know what things what things are becoming more and less popular at that time. Um, there are times in the history of our hobby where random things have changed, unbeknownst to us. I remember a few years ago when when hand numbered auto or hand numbered uh, items that are serial numbered started to actually be worth less because people realized that a lot of those had been wiped. The original serial number had been wiped and and replaced with a fake serial number or written in hand. And it's like, how can you predict things like that? There's so many things out there. So the, the reason that I wanted to do this, this first sort of piece on this today is that I really think that we all need to realize that there's always multiple variables at play 
And I think you've got to be considering each of those when you're looking at a card. And especially if you view it, you know, especially if you view the card as an investment. I'll get into the into the idea of cards as an investment in the second segment of this show. But if you and if you're trying to figure out how a value is going to change on something over time, there are really several variables that are significant and that are important. And we've talked about a portion of them, but not all of them. But but um, I think it's important to realize up front that those more multiple variables are things that you need to be considering. Okay, be back in a second with the second segment of today's show. Most of you know about PWCC. What you might not know is how much of the market share of auctions PWCC has taken from eBay. Every week, over 10,000 auctions, including thousands of basketball cards, end on the PWCC marketplace. If you haven't joined, it's super easy. It takes only a few minutes to register and begin bidding on everything from $5 cards to million-dollar cards. I recently picked up a 2007 Topps Chrome Superfractor of Kevin Garnett on the PWCC weekly auction. What are you waiting for? Register today at pwccmarketplace.com and start bidding. So I talked a lot in the first section about, or in segment, about how the macro influences over the hobby have a tremendous effect on, on the card market. And we've just seen it in, a, in abundance, right? You, ha- you had base prism players who were not even necessarily getting better, increasing in value hand over fist overnight, right? Um, and then you've had them come back down to earth. None of those things were caused by players. They were caused by timing in the market. And some people want to always sort of try to time the market. I kind of feel like um, that's possible. You can maybe do that. But I've seen a lot of people get burned on that over time. And so to me, that's not in the area that I play. I don't want to think about making or losing money based on how markets change and swing. It's more interesting to me to sort of isolate all the other things on the outside of that variable and just assume that that one's going to remain constant. Um, That's somewhat problematic because after the market took off so much, I think pretty much everybody who has been around for a long time realized that there probably had to be a significant correction. And so if your goal is just to make money and you don't mind leaving somebody else with losing a lot of money after you sell them an item, then then maybe that was you know, something that you could take advantage of. But but where's the top? Where's the bottom? Those things are still difficult to figure out. And uh, I, you hear people say, oh, I knew this was at the top, or oh, I knew this was at the bottom. The reality is people don't, right? You, you never know when something's at the top or at the bottom. Okay. For this segment, though, I want to talk a little bit about how um, or why cards are still investments, okay? So I've heard there's been like this growing number of people in the hobby, and and a lot of them, I think a lot of people have feel like this, and have felt like this for a long time. There's people who collect cards, and they don't want other people to think about the cards as investments. And on the other side, there are people who collect cards who, who really only look at them as investments. I am neither of these groups. Right. I'll just tell you my personal feeling on, on these things. You know, hopefully, hopefully it'll matter to you. Um, I love cards and I love collecting them for a lot of different reasons, but I definitely see them as financial assets and things that can increase in value and stores of value and fun stores of value. Right. And so um, I don't just look at them in, as investments by far. Like the reason that I've devoted so much of my life to them is not because of that. But it is a really important component in um, you know, in how I think about them. So what's an investment? 
Well, can investment be something that loses money? The answer is yes, right? Just because something decreases in value doesn't mean it wasn't an investment. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people don't really understand. I've heard people say cards aren't aren't investments because they lose money. Well, some cards do lose money. Even those you could consider investments. So anything can be an investment. I mean, we, a lot of people have invested money in the stock market and lost it all. Does that mean that it was an investment? Yeah, well, or does that mean it wasn't an investment? No, it was. It just was a poor one. And again, every investment that you make has multiple variables that are associated with it. And so to dumb it down and to think that it's just as simple as like, is this player going to perform? That's how, that's how novices think about these things, right? When you talk to somebody about the card market who doesn't understand the card market and they say, oh, I know about, you know, name a player, Paulo Benchero or something. Like that guy is going to be awesome. I want to invest in his cards. I think they're really smart. The, the people who are less novice will hear them say that and will recognize, well, that's good that you like him. That's good that you think he's going to be really good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a tremendous investment. Perhaps what we've seen over the course of the last several years is people with some of that, those novice sort of philosophies, but with large dollars come to market. Those people are often really taken advantage of either intentionally or unintentionally by auction format. And what do I mean by that? Well, some people, some people who are dealers really look for those who don't know what they're doing and try to sell them things for a lot of money. And, and that's how they make their money. And unfortunately, that's true in every sector in the world, right? They're, 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 you know the saying, there's a sucker born every minute. There are people who, who are looking for that. But at the same time, there are also people who come to market who, who have a lot of money who want to buy rookies or specific cards of players because they really believe in them. They come with this simplistic feeling of, oh, I believe such and such quarter, quarterback or such and such player is going to increase. And so then they really just pour a whole bunch into it. That, in the short term, can be really advantageous to some people, the sellers. But it also creates comps that people then follow that are not, that are not sustainable, that then harm the long term of that particular card or investment. Because there's also this sense that cards sort of progress linearly. We know they don't, right? We know that investments do not always perform linearly. Sometimes they do for a period, but almost nothing just has a very standard um, increase or decrease over time that is predictable, right? These are unpredictable assets. They are assets. They are investment. Um, now, what we've seen in the, in the market, though, over the course of the last couple of years, there have been some things that have, I think, been really problematic. Um, one thing is that we, a lot of us, including me, were really excited about sec securitizing or fractionalizing these assets and what that had the potential to do. And what I think we've seen, that has been met with some success, but, but unfortunately with a lot of failure. We've seen that there's a, that there's a lot of problematic issues with securitizing investments like this. And the reason that that's a problem is that that's where a lot of potential funding and cash for our market came from. So since that has failed, does that mean that it will always fail? It doesn't mean that. Does it mean that, you know, that we won't see it again in some for form that might even be more sort of accepted and better done? It doesn't mean that. Where will we be in 10 years? I have no idea. What I know is that um, there's still a demand for owning pieces of large assets that you can't own the whole part of. 
and that perhaps given a more stable um, marketplace or a more noble um, more no- noble costs some of these things would have been would have been possible but just because we've seen an iteration of it now doesn't mean that it didn't hasn't totally succeeded and has, again hasn't totally failed either um, but just because we haven't seen that success yet doesn't mean that we won't see it in the long term and so I would suggest to sort of keep your eyes on, out on that the other thing that I think we've seen is you know we've seen funds that have popped up like really true investment funds that that hold assets in our hobby specific like the assets or the the funds are specifically geared toward owning assets that are in our that are in our hobby and i don't know how well those funds have worked i don't know what the rules are about getting out of those funds i have don't no, i have no idea um what i do know is that you know as time goes by we'll figure out what some how some of those things do and i still believe that if the fund model is run the right way with the right people making decisions and keeping some level of, of some of the unnecessary costs down, I think there's a chance that that absolutely can crush it. And I, I will be interesting to see how the existing funds do. Um, not that we'll, we'll always receive reports on those types of things, um, specifically because they're private. But um, the other thing I wanted to say that I really feel like I know here is that, that sport and celebrities are increasingly admired. That hasn't decreased. That's increased. And the need for investments that are more interesting and knowable to us and closer to us that we can touch, I think that's bigger than it's ever been. And so, unfortunately, some of the macro things and some of the, the, the ways that, you know, some of the negative things that have happened, I think have turned people off to um, sports cards as investments. But I, I wonder in the long term if that will still be the case. Um, again, the, the the increased love of sports, uh, sport and celebrities, I think, will in the end continue to drive the assets forward. That's that's how I see the market. Again, this section is called how I see the market right now. That's what I believe. I could be totally wrong about that. I've been asked d- like dozens of times, like Adam, don't you think it's time to sell your big stuff? Like, why haven't you sold your big stuff? You could. And have life-changing money here because it, it is it is potentially life-changing money but the question isn't you know you know is this is even the question isn't is this the right time to sell it's if if, if i sell where where would i put it that i feel stronger about right there's assets in our hobby that will be really wanted for years and years down the line and there's such a small number of them the thesis is super interesting some of the people who have a lot of money, who have driven so much of this market, have been so hard, have been hit so hard, again, by macro events, that some of those people have been forced to liquidate. And when that happens, everything just changes. And that's what we've seen. We're probably going to see more of it. Does that mean that you know, things will continue to, to decrease in value. I'm not sure because I see now we've got to the point where there's so many people who are who are in on buying again for sort of, you know, personal reasons. They want to own a card for their collection. They believe in the card for the long term. When will those people be forced out? Will they ever be forced out? We've seen an, um, an, an unusual imbalance in the, the percentage or allocation of people who who normally wouldn't be getting out of the market all getting out at the same time. And as that cash is dried up from those wealthy people, 
it's changed so many things for us. And so then you've got people who sort of pontificate, like, is this the bottom? Again, you go back to the, to, to, to section number one here. We don't, we don't know those types of things and we can't know those types of things. So, you know, again, how do I see the market? I haven't sold my cards and people, I think you can watch how people think by, um, by looking at what they do with their wallets and in, in, in the world of cards, you, you can think about it like watch how people behave with their with their cards. Um, that doesn't mean if somebody sells something that they believe that the market's dying, right? I had to sell some stuff because I bought some stuff. Um, but I still believe in the market long term. I still believe in the idea of fractional funds. I still believe in, in things that right now you might say, well, that sounds crazy. Why would you say that? But Again, it's the multiple variables that have, that have made some of those things not work as well as possible. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about business is sometimes people will say, oh, so-and-so is really obviously really smart because that worked out really well for them. And in reality, a lot of times people get really lucky. Um, how, what am I, how am I trying to... How do I want to put this? Um, you may or may, may or may not have heard the story before of FedEx. FedEx was days away from going bankrupt. This was in their early days. And um, there's sort of this unbelievable story about how there was a chance that they wouldn't even be able to make payroll. They were about to go under. And then um, there's an awesome story. I don't want to, I actually don't remember the whole thing, but also don't want to share the whole thing with you here right now. But by the skin of their teeth did FedEx pull it out. And they were, you know, that close to, to, calling it, to calling it bankrupt and to ending it. And now you look back and you go, wow, they, you know, they're geniuses. They've, they've made billions of dollars. Like, of course, they, they were always going to succeed. But sometimes these things really turn on a dime. Sometimes the scales are really close. And you never really know, um, you know, exactly how things are going to work in the end. But... You know, what I think you do know is that is is how you feel about things like the hobby, and um, and again, seeing understanding things in the short term is a lot easier than understanding them in the long term. But I look at the amount of money that's been spent on the ecosystem of the hobby. I look at the people who I think are really smart and how they behave. I look at how society as a whole um, behaves, and I try to sort of understand some of those macro things. I still don't see the value of a dollar as making as much sense as the value of a collectible. The value of the dollar has been questioned really over the course of the last decade in with cryptocurrencies and um, other things that sort of make you question why money is worth anything. That may sound crazy right now, but that's the sort of thing that we believed a couple of years ago and we, we thought was you know, maybe going to direct us. Then we've had this, you know, tremendous um, recession uh, and we have far less money and we have some assets that have just died in value. Um, cards are not one of those. Some assets have gotten crushed. To me, in the end of it, I still believe in cards. When I look at the cards that I have that I love, that are rare, that I think I know a lot of people would really like to have, I look at them and I go, how could I invest my money better than that? Is it with dollars? Is it with something that generates dollars? Maybe, maybe. But for me, at least a portion of my 
assets I will always want to have in sports collectibles, specifically cards, because cards are, you know, cards cards are the, the stock market of, cards are the stock market and the art market of the world of sports. Right? Some people are really pushing big time the world of sports memorabilia, and sports memorabilia is awesome. It just, it's not a stock market the same way that cards are. Um, I just, I love cards. I think it's, I, I personally still feel really strong, strongly about it, but saying that almost makes me feel queasy given how, given what we've seen over the course of the last couple of years. All right, we'll be back in a second for, se uh, for section number three. I suspect most of you have been on MC Sports Cards items on eBay and nearly 60,000 positive feedback. They're one of the biggest consignment companies on eBay. What you might not know is that they've started a focus auction for 1K and over items that end Monday nights, and they call it MC Mondays. Dozens of huge cards end on Monday, all at open auction. You could check out the items by searching by seller and going to MC underscore sports cards today. You can tell I'm new to this. I still couldn't even remember the word segment. <laughs> I was going with section. I'm going to leave it there because... You got to start somewhere with with this. I'm trying this transition thing with the with the ads. I hope you guys like them. Um, grateful for all of our sponsors and uh, and for their confidence in um, in you know sponsoring us. I'm grateful uh, grateful for for each of them and and for what they provide. And um, and and the other thing I'd say is that I believe in each of them. Right? We haven't gone out for um, sponsors that are people who or groups that I don't really believe in. So you know, keep that in mind as we roll forward. Okay, last segment. This one's a little bit more fun. So yesterday I got a big card in the mail. Um, it's one of the biggest cards uh, that I've gotten in the mail in a really long time. Not that biggest matters most, right? The, the question that I think you always want to ask when you're collecting is what cards do you like the most? People ask me all the time why I do the top 100 by value rather than based on what I like. And the answer is really simple. I don't think people are going to care as much about um, me doing it by what I like. Um, I think, I think it's, it's nice. It's a nice, um, exercise to go through and to determine what you believe a card is worth on the market today. And then your personal list of what matters to you most, you sort of keep that tucked in the back of your mind. Cause, cause then when it's time to sell something to go buy something else that your collection really needs, what you do is you look for how to get the money out of the cards that matter least to you. If that makes sense. So, so just because something's high on the list doesn't mean that it's the least likely thing for me to sell. I will sell things um, to raise the money that I need to. And sometimes you've got a card that you can afford to, to let go that's higher up on your list. Now, I also have a rule that you never sell your best cards, and that has served me really well too. But that's a little bit that's a little bit of, of different thinking. I think, you know, for me, I sort of think about it like my top 10 cards are really untouchable based on value. But then after that, it's like, can I get a card that is going to be higher on my list, personal list or value list based on the cards that are sort of are gettable from me? Okay, so the card that I acquired was a Kobe Bryant 2016 uh, Signature Spotlight. It's that beautiful image of Kobe looking away from the camera. So you're actually sort of like, you're getting a reverse image of Kobe. It's signed in gold. The signature spotlight autographs are fantastic. They have this beautiful gold holofoil around the edges of the card and um, uh, black, like really super high gloss, almost like a glass on the, on the face of the card and a softer 
cardboard on the reverse of the card. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out on my Instagram or check it out. Um, you know, just Google Kobe Bryant Spotlight Signature. It's one of his nicest autographs. In fact, when I wrote, I wrote a piece for May's issue of Basketball Card Fanatic. It was about, um, I, I did what I believed, I did some research on what I believed were the five, um, the five best Kobe autographs of the Panini era. As a Kobe Bryant autograph collector, I thought this would be interesting. Um, I now, now that I've acquired it, have three of the five. Um, there's two that are going to be really tough to find. This one, this one was exceptionally difficult to find. Um, and, and so let me tell you what I wrote about it. So 2016-17, Noir Signature Spotlights. The year following Kobe's retirement, Noir created perhaps their best-looking year of the Spotlight Signatures insert set. The dark background, use of holofoil around the perimeter of the card, and gold paint pens are distinct for all the right reasons. But what makes this one stand out is Kobe himself. How many cards do you see the, the back of the athlete? How many athletes get a this is the end of my career commemorative card? That's what this felt like. It's Kobe saying goodbye to us. It's Mamba out. And then I said, I've never had, had as much trouble adding a card that there are over 100 of is this one probably because at Howley Hustle is hoarding them. <laughs> so Eric owned six of these cards. He was kind enough to let me buy one of the six. Um, and it's in my collection now. And as I always say with cards like this, I don't anticipate ever selling it. Um, but you never know. Um, these things, the, sometimes things change and you always, and you think about it, but this is like right in my wheelhouse. It's a recognizable, important Kobe autograph that is aesthetically awesome. It's not as rare as most cards that I would want, but again, it was so difficult to find it that I think that really speaks, you know, that speaks to it. The thing that I had to break on this is my role of, um, is my role of like collecting cards from a player's, um, from their playing days. Uh, Kobe retired in 2015-16, so this is actually my first Kobe Bryant card that was that was made after he retired. I generally don't collect a lot of those. Um, my one obvious exception is on Eminence, just because I really like Eminence as a product. I've broken that rule a million, a million times. I have a Karl Malone Gold out of 2012 Prism. It's not a playing days card, but outside of those, and maybe just a few others, for the most part, I don't love non-playing days cards. Um, I don't even have like a Jordan Exquisite, guys. Um, I, I really generally just stay away from that stuff. I like playing days cards. It feels like it's part of their really essential cards. But this Kobe, to me, felt like a bookend. Felt like what they produced when he was done. So I just love it. Um, I love the, the glassy surface. I love gold on black. I don't think there's anything nicer than gold on black in this hobby, and um, especially when the guy takes the time to sign it right. Some people have said that, that the paint pens always need to be really thin. I just I don't know that that's true. I, I think that the pen just has to show up well. And sometimes the thick stuff can look really bad because it can be super streaky. But if it's not signed streaky, it's amazing. Um, Chris Paul is the best signer in gold that I've seen. But Kobe Bryant's darn good too. Um, and the last thing that I want to say here and sort of to circle back on the whole on this whole episode is that... Um, you, you have to let the collector part of your brain drive a significant part of your decision making. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about 
like multiple variables in this con in this conversation today. Like there's there are um, there are multiple variables that influence how something will do long term. My experience tells me that that I kind of have to ignore the macro and really focus on on what the collector part of my brain thinks, but that's not the only part, right? It's not just the, the collector side. When I'm buying something, it needs to make sense with both my brain and my heart. Or in other words, it has to make sense logically and be something that I really want to own, right? Logically, like brain and, and, and heart, or brain and desire, like it has to work both ways. And so I have this history in, in, in my brain of like what has worked long term for people as they buy cards and I can't turn that off. I always have to be thinking with that part of me, but I want to also be thinking about the parts that like, like, do I want to own this thing? If I don't really want to own a card, then I, then I'm not going to buy it. Even if I think I can turn around and sell it for a lot more money because the selling the card for more money thing, that is less important to me. It has to, it has to fit has to fit inside my collection, at, le at least for a time and usually for a long time. National is coming, guys. I hope to see some of you there. I'm planning to be there on Thursday and Friday. Um, if you see me, uh, again, we're only a few weeks a few weeks a week. Come, come by and say hi. Um, I'd love to get to know some of you guys. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still getting over a cold. On that note, thank you for downloading the podcast today. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Basketball Card Podcast. Reminder to subscribe to Basketball Card Fanatic Magazine at bcfmag.com. Remember to use discount code BASKETBALL10 for 10% off any item in the store. That's bcfmag.com.